this morning. I get the privilege of introducing our speaker this morning. And I was going to say that in this room, he would be the one who's known me longest, having been married now 36 years, except my friend Rietta showed up this morning and we went to Sunday school together. <laughs> so second longest. Um, and I, I feel like my heart is really full this morning. And there's a lot of things I want to say about him, Bradley, that is. Um, but I don't want to embarrass him and I don't want to cry. So now I'm going to try to thread the needle here. Um, singing that song about grace just now, I feel like the person who has shown me the most grace in this whole wide world is Bradley. Um, and I have required a lot of grace over the years. And so um, I hope I haven't taken advantage of that, but I, have, I am definitely most appreciative of it. Um, I'm also very proud of him uh, because um, he has learned a lot of things in this life. And a lot of them didn't come easily just because he's smart. A lot of them he, um, you know, walked into walls and stubbed his toes and um, made mistakes and then still rose up again. And I'm proud of him for rising time and time again. So um, we're going to hear from him in a few minutes, but I'm going to read uh, the scripture passage now. And it's a little bit long. It's Psalm 31. And I'm going to just do a very brief pause at the end of each verse. And maybe in your heart, you can just respond. What was it? Sorry, Brad. <laughs> Either I with you always, or Paul tells himself. Okay, so either I will be with you always, or all shall be well. Psalm 31, starting with verse 1. For the end, a psalm by David of ecstasy. In you, O Lord, I hope, may I not be ashamed forever. In your righteousness, deliver and rescue me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be to me a God who protects me and a house of refuge to save me. For you are my strength and my refuge, and for your name's sake, you will guide and sustain me. For you will bring me out from the snare they hid for me, for you are my protector. Into your hands I shall entrust my spirit. You redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. You hate those who maintain their empty vanities, but I hope in the Lord. I will greatly rejoice and be glad because of your mercy, for you beheld my humiliation. You saved my soul from distress and did not shut me up into the hands of the enemy. You set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am afflicted. 
My eye is troubled with anger. So are my soul and my stomach. For my life is wasted with grief and my years with sighing. My strength is weakened with poverty and my bones are troubled. I became a reproach among all my enemies and especially to all my neighbors and a fear to all my acquaintances. Those who saw me outside fled from me. I am forgotten like one whose heart is lifeless. I was made like a vessel that is utterly broken. For I heard the blame of many who dwell round about when they were gathered together against me, when they plotted to take my life. But as for me, I hope in you, O oh Lord. I said, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who per persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your mercy. O oh Lord, do not let me be ashamed because I call upon you. Let the ungodly be ashamed and lead them down into Hades. Let deceitful lips become speechless when they speak lawlessness against the righteous with arrogance and contempt. How great, O oh Lord, is the abundance of your goodness. You hide for those who fear you, which you will work which you will work for those who hope in you in the sight of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret of your presence with the disturbance of men. You will shelter them in your tabernacle from the contradiction of tongues. Blessed is the Lord, for he magnified his mercy in a fortified city. But I said in my ecstasy, indeed, I am cast away from the countenance of your eyes. Therefore, you heard the voice of my supplication when I cried to you. Love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord seeks out truth, and he, re he repays those who act with great arrogance. Be courageous and let your heart be strengthened, all who hope in the Lord. Thanks, Eden. <clears throat> um, so this morning, uh, this is one of the, uh, what do you call it? The lectionary passages, parts of Psalm 31 anyways. And, um, and I've chosen to focus on that to talk about an idea that's, that, that I've been writing on, uh, out of the embers out of the embers, faith after the great deconstruction. <clears throat> and uh, I particularly like this translation because it, it reflects the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the apostles used when they wrote our New Testament. This Greek translation is actually older than our Hebrew manuscripts today. It's very old. This is what 
if not Jesus, probably him too, but then certainly the apostles um, would have read. And so in Greek-speaking Jewish synagogues, they would have sung this together. They would have chanted it and prayed it together. They would have made it their own story. David's story becomes their story. Uh, by the way, we're having a Sikh festival next door there. And they do the same things. I'm about 60% of the way through their scriptures right now. It's quite remarkable what you might hear them sing in their tongue. Here's a line for you from them. With one glance of your grace, all my sins are washed away. And so they sing their song to the one true universal God, just as we sang our song to the one true universal God. And this might have been a competition at one time, but I'm suspecting there's a brotherhood here. And what we bring in our song is the Lord Jesus, the God who bears our wounds. And we're going to see that in this psalm. And so the psalm began, could we go to the beginning of the passage again? In this translation, the song begins with the end. For the end. Now, a lot of your Bibles would say, for the choir director there. That was a bad guess. <laughs> but the Greek translators from before the time of Jesus, who were real rabbis, and who actually knew Hebrew and Greek, translated this same word, for the end, or they use the word telos, which is such a common word in Greek now, it's becoming an English word. The telos means your end, fulfillment, completion. It is finished. It is accomplished. Jesus uses this word on the cross when he says, it is finished. And so we have a dedication at the very beginning of this psalm, to the end or unto the end. So that's an important thing to know because we get to read from the end. We get to look at the last page of the book and ask how it ends, and then we go through the mess of how we get there. The other weird thing in this translation is it, said, it, it includes that phrase, of ecstasy. That's not in um, some of our Bibles at all. Other ones, um, it would say the word ecstasy there is, it's a revelation. So an ecstasy is when you're kind of out of your mind, and you get this revelation. Well, a revelation of what? Um, a revelation of Christ as, as the telos, as the one who completes everything, who brings it into fullness. Now, another way to translate that besides revelation or ecstasy would be sudden fear. So that's interesting. Alarm. And that may come up in the text. So we've got this revelation of not only Christ as the fulfillment of all things, but specifically through the cross. And Jesus will cite this very psalm as he's hanging on the cross. Um, you may have noticed that. So I'm not going to read the whole psalm again, but I'll pop in here and there to key verses. But I will lay it out. This is generally the outline. It starts with faith in the fire. David is passing through some kind of fire. And in, in that place, in his this intense trial, he's, he starts with what I would call triumphalistic prayers. Victory prayers that are kind of like whistling in the dark. They're 
a little bit like platitudes. They're a little bit like word of faith confessions. They're a little bit like manifestation. You know, I'm going to manifest good things now. Yes, I'm sure you are. So it's this face in the fire that's a bit triumphalistic, you know. Um, and, and, and he's, you're my strength and you're my refuge and I'm going to win, right? Right? <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope so. And that's sort of verse 1 to 9. So it's very much victory, but it's the guy in the fire and, and it feels like, mm, is, am I though? And we know that because then you go into like verse 10 to 19 in this translation. It starts with, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am afflicted. My eye is troubled with anger, my soul and my stomach. Now, I have this odd problem where I wish my anxiety would shrink my stomach. It doesn't. It just gives me indigestion. Or worse. And, 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 uh, and so he's feeling this. In Dostoevsky's novels, he talks about it. It's a faith of fevers and tears. And in fact, these, these aren't triumphalistic prayers. In fact, they're almost bereft prayers. Bereft means like hopeless. But they're still prayers. That's interesting. And then, and then, so he goes and he gets super raw and honest. I've become a reproach among all my enemies. Um, I'm forgotten like one whose heart is lifeless. I was made a vessel that is utterly broken. I don't know if you played along with Eden's suggestion, but I wonder what that was like if you said, I'm forgotten, one whose heart is lifeless. I was made like a vessel that is utterly broken. I am with you always. Or all shall be well. But it's, a, it's bereft prayers. But prayers nevertheless. And then the last section, verse 20 to 25, he comes through it. And I, I would say we've gone from faith in the fire to faith in the ashes. And now it's out of the embers. Telos prayers. End game heirs. Seasoned faith that's been through the fire. After the fire. That's been ashes and then came out phoenix-like. So that's sort of the breakdown where he ends up. He's processing all the way through to the end. And in, in the very end, he, he, he says... Uh, be courageous. Let your heart be strengthened, all who hope in the Lord. And it's not just the hope of wishful thinking anymore. It's the hope that many of you have who've passed through the fire. It's a, it, it's a seasoned kind of faith. So that's what this psalm is doing. And um, someone's asked me if I would do Bible studies on the psalms. I think I just need to do one, and it's this one. Because you can, can and probably should use this as a pattern that when we read the Psalms, we, do, we read it three times. The first reading is what we would call the historical reading or the literal reading. It's David's story. The second reading is then a personal, a personal reading, your story. How this is about not only David, let's see, 3,000 years ago, but your story this weekend and tomorrow. A, a personal reading, or what in the early church would have called the moral sense. And then we're not done yet. The third reading is, especially in any psalm that starts with, unto the end, 
It's Jesus' story. And how is this Jesus' story? Um, how, how is that his punchline, you know? And so I want to do that briefly. I'm going to walk through three readings of it. And again, I won't read it all, but first reading, David's story. We're reading about David in deconstruction, and it's a double deconstruction. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you haven't. I definitely have. The double deconstruction means, one, there's external trials that we face, that you, that you undergo them. You didn't make them happen. You get T-boned by somebody else. In Eden's case, the trials of living with me harmed her for real, external. She didn't bring that on herself. Um, this is people who go through tragedies, people who are born with disabilities, people who enter chronic illnesses, people who've been in accidents, people who've lost loved ones, even their own children. You know, that, that's a kind of external deconstruction, and it's how it affects your faith. It can be very severe. Where was God when that happened? And then David also has the double deconstruction of the personal moral meltdown from the inside. In his case, the external was Saul trying to kill him. The internal was what he went through in his self-destructive phase with Bathsheba and how that impacted him. And it's like, not only where was God when that happened, but who am I now before God? And the, the beautiful thing for David is, is that he brings us the punchline at the end. After all those fires, after running for his life, after completely screwing up his marriages, plural, right? He comes to trust. A seasoned faith where he's like, I can put my hope in this one because out of the ashes, out of the embers, out of my failures, out of my afflictions, he never left me. And the very next psalm is, is praising God uh, in the forgiveness he experienced so that he's even somehow able to forgive himself. Second reading now. David's reading suggests my reading, our personal reading, our moral reading, our story. And I, I want to share two sides of that. So one is initially where David sounds so bereft. I'm used to that. I'm, I, I, I recognize how for some people, this we're kind of already bored of the term deconstruction, but for some, it really was a liberation. It's meant to be, where we're throwing off things, chains that hindered us from walking with God. That's what it's really about. You know, these... Um, hindrances that we set aside, Hebrews 12.1. That's deconstruction. It's very liberating. But also for some, it's super traumatic. And they, they, they didn't realize how far it would go, and they couldn't control how far it would go. So, um, and, and so we can end up, that some of us will experience our faith come apart so badly that we, that we are bereft. And that's where David is halfway through this psalm. Um, I wish the deconstruction influencers were more empathetic to this shadow side. Uh, for lifelong believers whose entire world revolved around Christian faith or any faith, even to a fault, the experience of deconstruction is not always pure joy. 
It can be another trauma. And I'm afraid that some have been focused so much on the first trauma, what we went through as young religious kids or something, bad religion, that we're under, unaware or, or we undersell how traumatizing, how shattering deconstruction itself can be. So I found a really powerful description of this in a novel by Paul Kingsnorth. The novel's called Beast, and you can hear this, the language of, of bereft here. Um, so I'm quoting right from the novel. You're going to have to just pick it up without context. I'm sorry. From the east I came to this high place to be broken, to be torn apart, beaten, cut into pieces. I came here to measure myself against the great emptiness. I came here to touch the void, to leap naked into it with the shards of what was falling around me, to have the void clean me of the smallness that I swam in. That might sound like some of your stories. To retreat from the encircling, from the furious thoughts and opinions, the views and the positions soldered together with impatience and anger, enfolding the world in underwater cables and radio waves, gluing the world up. And in all directions, there's a cloud. There's no sound. Now I feel bereft. I have been abandoned. I have been left. I know what you think. I know how it sounds. I know God is dead. I know he's been killed with everything else. I know all the parts have been taken out and are lying around on the carpet, and now we're all free to be unhappy, alone. I know there is nothing holy now. It looks so stupid to the people who take everything apart. I love this, though. It's almost like he whispers, but I think there are things deep in some people that won't be taken apart. The people Kingsnorth is describing don't respond well to platitudes or shallow do-it-yourself fixes. They can't just be duct tape back together. Our best response is empathy, sharing stories without imposing our story on theirs, but at least saying, I hear you. Here's how it's been for me. Different for sure, but enough resonance that we might Travel together if you want company. So um, that's a novella, but I get these messages in DMs almost every week. Here's one from someone I'll call Nate, not his real name. He wrote me. He said, I'm an ex-pastor of a campus of what used to be one of the bigger churches in America. More than 10 campuses. I've gone through a crisis of faith after getting deep into skeptical scholarship. I walked away from my faith when was appreciating mystics from every religion. I've also listened to a lot of gentle souls who don't believe in a named God, but rather in a universal consciousness or divine intelligence uh, that is the zero-point field of creation. I felt so sure in my newfound agnostic belief that's an interesting statement. Agnostic belief. That's a. But after a severe breakdown, a hell trip of the mind that left me a shell of mess, I feel shattered into a million pieces and don't really know what's happening. 
I'm at the bottom trying to piece my life back together while daily battling this new monster. While driving home today from the psychologist, I was just so upset. And suddenly, your name popped in my head. And I pulled over to send you a message. I feel like I don't believe in Jesus anymore. But then, at my lowest, I found myself calling him. There's a Russian saying. It goes this way. When you think you've reached the bottom, you'll hear a knock from below. (laughs) I want to say... That's Jesus. He comes back, uh, I'm not seeking counseling, so I don't wish to trouble you. My question is how you've kept the faith. I'm curious how you manage to have faith in Jesus as opposed to universe, etc. Well, that's easy. Universe doesn't love me. So <laughs> try walking off a cliff. Um, so I get, I get messages like this nearly every week and sometimes every day. And I try to respond, but I've learned that people who use words like bereft, shattered, and bottom don't need to be chastised for wandering away. Neither do they need a cheering squad to wave congratulatory pom-poms at them at the threshold of the psych ward. And they find little solace from rational answers from apologists or clever advice from cynics. So what can we offer the beleaguered and bereft? Empathy is a good place to start. And maybe that's what David is doing. He's saying, I know your story. Here's my story. Let's walk together a bit. So that's the one side of the personal reading. The other side is this. There's, after that, there's this inexplicable faith. A guy who doesn't believe in God anymore somehow whispering a prayer to Jesus. That's weird. But the flip side of that is this inexplicable faith, and it becomes so beautiful and powerful, and and you realize, oh my goodness, that came from out of nowhere, and so there's something very validating about that. I'll give you a quick example. My friend Roxanne at the back, serving coffee today. Someday you're going to get to hear her story, I hope. But it's a story about faith that's been through the fire, stuff I've not been through, can't even imagine. And at the end of the day, I memorize these words from her. But I'm going to read them anyway, so don't stumble. Out of Roxanne's story, quote, There's a comfort so deep in my heart that the peace and serenity sometimes overtake me. Um, I do encourage you to check into what she's doing with the overdose situation in Abbotsford. Over 50 overdose deaths in Abbotsford in the first six months of this year. That's a pandemic, or an epidemic. So, um, so, so someone like Roxanne who's seen this stuff, for her to know the overdose situation in our own city and to come and say there's a comfort so deep in my heart that the peace and serenity sometimes overtake me. I want to know what she has. Another beautiful um, uh, version of this, Faith after the, after the, Out of the Embers, uh, it's a poem that our, our friend Malcolm Geit from the UK did about this psalm. So here's his response to this very psalm. The night withdrew and joy came in the morning when I remembered that I was remembered. That even through the bitter tears of mourning I was sustained. 
The darkest powers were hindered in their insidious work within my soul. That's, how, that's a Christian reading of the, of the enemies in this psalm. The enemies in this psalm that God hates and will take down into Hades are not people. They are the darkest powers in their insidious work within my soul. So he says, they were hindered, and I was held together and re-membered. By your unceasing love, you made me whole when all the world was tearing me apart, when there was fear on every side. You stole into the secret garden of my heart, a good thief in the night, and hid with me in your strong tabernacle, held apart from all that strife of tongues, cacophony of condemnations, so you kept me safe in your deep silence and your mystery." And that's seasoned faith. That's not triumphalism. That is not a, a weak platitude. That is someone who's passed through the fire and says, I know God is good. So that's the second reading. We had David's story, the historical reading. Then we've got your story, the personal reading, but we're not done. So the, finally, the third reading, it's the gospel reading. Or what we used to call the spiritual reading. It's the Jesus story. And this psalm is the Jesus story. And it's specifically the story about how he faces into all the darkness of our stories and overcomes it on the cross. I use the word telos, the end, the fulfillment. He, the Christian reading of this psalm is he is the telos. He is the end game. And you get hints of this, uh, verse 5 and 6, he quotes from the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is when we meet, you know, you've heard of God Almighty. Here's God all powerless when he has gone so deep into the human condition that he can't call 10,000 angels. And he's not getting off the cross and he will die for sure in that moment for all of us. He trusts his spirit into God's hands. And he cries out with a loud voice. And he dies. That was his last words. Jesus chooses Psalm 31, verse 5 and 6, as his last words. And then later on, um, this is interesting, verse 23 said, But I said in my ecstasy, or, remember, or alarm, or sudden fear, said, I said in my ecstasy or alarm, indeed, I am cast away from the countenance of your eyes. It means, in my alarm, I said, you've turned your face away. But, he says, therefore, you heard my voice of supplication when I cried to you. So it's like Psalm 22 that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then verse 22 to 24, he says, Actually, that was a cry for help. It's not a statement of reality. God never turns his face from us. It's a cry for help. You've abandoned me. No, I haven't. I knew it. And the psalmist says, you did not despise your afflicted one. You did not turn your face away. But I needed to provoke that revelation by calling out in my anguish. Because guess what? Everyone goes through that. 
I love this because it means that he even dies for those who despair. He experienced that with us and then raises us up with him. Um, so here's the punchline. In the Jesus reading, the gospel reading of this psalm, the Jesus is the telos. This is his story, a revelation of his death and resurrection. It's his invitation to make his story our story. That his prayers can become our prayers. That his faith becomes our faith. That as we see our afflictions in his afflictions, our wounds in his wounds, our trauma in his trauma, our wounds united in, into those hands on his side, so too then his hope in God becomes our hope. Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well becomes our hope. Roxanne's comfort becomes our comfort. And out of the embers, the words all shall be well are not just platitudes, but it's anchored faith that somehow remains after the fire. And then out of those embers, we can return to the first and last lines of the psalm. In you, O Lord, I hope. Be courageous. Let your heart be strengthened, all you who hope in the Lord. Amen.